Good morning, and welcome to this new year. How are you feeling about it all? Well, Baz Ashmawi wasn't exactly embracing it. Not so far, anyway. 2022. Yeah, I, I don't know what to say. I, I want to be positive. I, I'm a fairly positive person, you know. I just, I just don't know. I'm a, I'm a little, I'm a little numb. But it's hard, is what I'm saying. It's hard to just start high-kicking your way into work today a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Yay! 2022! New year, new me. You just, if you're one of them, you sparkly, shiny, new me kind of people, you can just back up. Just stay away for a minute. You go back in your box and turn on your high heels. Seriously. As I say, like, I, I'm, I'm positive. Like, uh, I, I try to find the light in even the darkest of situations. But... We've all been to the pandemic puppet show. You know, we've seen the strings. And like many of you, the normality last night of sticking straws up me schnoz. Just, it's just how how astonishingly normal that has become. Oh, he's not wrong there. Pinching out the gloop. One, two, three, sometimes even four drops. And then the white knuckle wait for the line. But Baz, in for Ryan, seems to have quite the swirl, if he does say so himself. I have the most sensitive touch, seemingly, in, in the house. It's been voted. Um, Tanya's quite brutal and the kids, uh, the kids have opted for me to, to do it. So, so I have, I have a, a good touch. So now, um, doing that last night with the fear that what would happen if I can't come into work this morning, that would just be a mare. And like many of you, the normality of just spending, spending your time doing things like that, so weird. But if Baz has a gentle twirl right up there, mind you, right up, Connor Pope too has some tricks up his sleeve. I've become so skilled at taking the antigen tests, I think I might open a clinic. Because because in the early days of the antigen testing, I was just whacking it up my nose and hoping for the best. But having watched so many videos, I now know that you need to bend it around a little bit and right. you need to push it up until your eyes are practically streaming. Yeah. So my children are just like, they, they, they hate me when they see me approaching with the antigen kits. But as you well know, as soon as you think that you might have it, you start developing phantom symptoms. Oh, like, yeah. oh God, I've got a You can think yourself throat. sick. You can think yourself sick. That's the, you know. and, and then you find out that, the, that somebody has grand and they don't have it. And you think, oh, I'm fine again as well. But it's just, it's part Sorry. of the world that we're living in now. And Connor had an idea for Ray. Raise yourself. You could just put show it on TikTok. <laughs> Ray, there's TikTok. the thing. You could become a TikTok sensation overnight and pick some music to yes, do it yes, to. Yes. To do it to some really dancey tune. Ray Darcy's antigen testing. Uh, I tell you, it's, it'll be a viral sensation if you forget hey, the words. Don't, <laughs> don't encourage him. But Omicron is indeed omnipresent and it seems a matter of when, not if, we'll all be getting double lines on our test. However, after much debate, schools did open on Thursday and onward we limp. But the COVID aside, if we can, much of the radio this week was, predictably enough, yes Baz, I'm afraid so, about a new year, new you kind of thing. And according to Trinity's professor Ian Robertson, who's booked a Cormac on drive time, there is actually something to this time of year that might spur us on to be our very best selves. And step away from the chocolate until Wednesday, anyway. A fresh start is, I guess, a kind of story we tell ourselves that look, we can begin again. Uh, the famous Brendan Kennelly, um, you know, had this wonderful poem begin, and actually, we have the capacity at any moment to 
to actually, because of the plasticity of our brain, because of our brain capacity, we, we can start afresh any moment. However, it's tough. It's hard because we're all in the railroads of habit. Mm. And um, however, there, is a, a, there, are stories, there are stories in the environment, like the story of the new year, or the story of the, the grand old stretch, or, or, or <laughs> you know, that, that means there are times where there's a, a, a kind of external aid, a kind of momentum that allows us to say, okay, I know I can do this any time, but it's a bit easier now. It's, so, it's, so is it, yeah. Ian, is it the fresh start effect, does that give you the impetus to start, but it's by no means the magic wand to make it continue, whatever resolution you have, is that right? That's exactly right. Ah. So, so, so when, when we're in a period of, of, of relaxation, maybe like we have been over the last, for many of us, over the last couple of weeks, um, it allows our brain to freewheel a bit. And that can throw up ideas like I'm going to lose weight or I'm going to take exercise or I'm going to start an art class or whatever it is. Mm. Uh, and that's fine. That's good. That's, that's the, the, your brain being creative, being released from habit in order to come up with a new idea. Getting it implemented is a completely different uh, kettle of fish that requires a different set of brain systems. And that's where we really need to think about the nuts and bolts precisely what we're going to do, when we're going to do it, and how we're going to know whether we've done it or not. Um, and all that mental preparation makes it much more likely that we're going to actually follow up on the resolution and, and see it through. And what about the good professor? What changes would he like to make? Well, as a psychology guru, uh, Ian Robertson, you must have every single trick in the book from the fresh start effect to every other psychology trick to, to make sure that your resolutions are implement, started and implemented sustainably, correct? Absolutely. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Tell me the other one. Do you have resolutions? Well, well, my, my, my resolution this year, I was, it was a tough one for myself. I, I decided I'm going to drink better wine um, now, I'll, I'll make it... <laughs> that, that hopefully will mean I'll, I might drink a bit less. I, I don't drink a, a whole lot. And, um, uh, uh, you know, I, but the, what, 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 in, in that kind of little uh, story is some a truth there. It's much easier to take resolutions which are positive than ones which are negative. Oh, that's a nice way to spin it. So it's a cheeky little red for Professor Ian Robertson in 2022. But his words did chime somewhat with those of Pat Divoli, who is a health and wellness coach whose new book is called Fit Mind, Eight Weeks to Change Your Inner Soundtrack and Tune Into Your Greatness. Who would not want that? But rather than go, 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 he's advocating a softer tone and a more compassionate approach. He spoke to Miriam on Sunday. The way we speak to ourselves... And how that impacts how we show up in the world. You know, the stories we tell ourselves impact how we feel in ourselves and our feelings impact the actions that we take. So if I'm telling myself that I'm someone that always falls off the wagon, if that's my narrative going into 2022, that's going to bring about a feeling of hopelessness. And when you feel hopeless, the chances are you're going to do something to sabotage because you back up how you see yourself. So mental and emotional wellness is kind of the piece that I feel we're missing. 
how are we speaking to ourselves? Do we have an awareness of the stories we're telling ourselves? Do we have a toolkit for challenging those difficult stories? And the other piece then is the emotions. A lot of us believe that some emotions are wrong and so you should hide from them or run from them. And that was my experience in my 20s when I was sad or lonely or isolated or anxious. Rather than look at the emotion and say, what is this here to teach me? My mentality was, I'll go and achieve more because if you achieve things, then you'll feel good in yourself. And that's a kind of self-loathing exercise. It's, I'm going to run away from the parts of me that I haven't accepted. And if I get things outside of myself, it'll fulfill this wound that I have internally. But you'll never fix an external or an internal problem with an external solution. So you've got to come back to yourself and sort of say, sometimes I'm anxious and that's okay. And I need to get to know that part of myself and accept that part of myself. And he identified one word that maybe we could all do without. I think our stress in life is often a disconnect. It's the should. Things should be different how they are. Well, things are the way they are. (laughs) Can I accept the way things are? And from a place of acceptance, we can change. But from a place of things are wrong and things... That that word of should is is an interesting one to catch. My partner should be showing up differently. My body should look different. These are all the stories that cause us stress. And rather than looking forward all the time in goal setting, Divoli recommends taking stock of our past wins. And you know what's interesting as well, the issue of actually feeling successful, as you mentioned, and content, it's something you raise a lot because a lot of people, I suppose, struggle, even listening now this morning, to fully define the meaning of success for themselves. And then they probably feel a bit discontented or even despair when the trappings of success don't satisfy them. I think for a lot of us, we think success lives in the future. So it's always the next thing. You know, I climb this mountain and then I'm looking at 100 more. I achieve this goal and then the we move the goalposts all the time. And so it's very hard to feel successful um, if you're always moving the goalposts. And I use an analogy of imagining a child coming home from school and announcing that I did this and I did this and I did this. And their parent responding by saying, well, what's next? And every day the parent saying, what's next? What's next? The child's self-esteem would diminish rapidly. But then for ourselves, we do lots in the day. And then in the evening, we think, what's on my to-do list for tomorrow? So a simple journaling practice again might be to sit down in the evening, give yourself five minutes and reflect on what did I do well today? What were my wins and how do I build upon those pieces? Our confidence comes from the past as opposed to the future, but we never I shouldn't speak in generalities, but sometimes we forget to press pause and reflect on how far we've come. So if you can measure backward rather than measure Mm -hmm. forward, I think your confidence will skyrocket this year. Really interesting. If there's someone listening this morning, Pat, as we close now, feeling maybe a bit daunted by either their New Year's resolution or their lack of them, Mm. what's one piece of advice you would give people this morning? I think that piece probably on on reflecting on your wins. Um, th- three simple questions I, I kind of write down in the evening that I find useful. The, fir- or f- the first question I ask myself is, what were three wins today? And that helps me collect confidence and recognise my progress. The second question I ask is, what did I learn today? So if we can learn from every experience, even if it's a difficult experience, then we're, we're, we're um, going from a good place. And finally, who did I help today? So going beyond yourself. Pat Divoli on Sunday with Miriam. And high on many people's to-do lists is to turn off your phone. And Johan Harry's book is called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention. And he says increasing work hours and workload, less sleep and poor nutrition are major factors affecting our ability to concentrate. And throw in our twitching need to constantly scroll. So it is no wonder we're banjaxed. The, the depth of this is striking. The average American college student now spends, uh, now focuses on any one task for just 65 seconds. And the average 
office worker now focuses on any one task for just three minutes. You know, I really had to change my own psychology about this because when my attention was getting worse, I would usually respond by blaming myself. Exactly. Exactly. You You feel I I am (laughs) addicted to my phone. This is my fault. But that's where the hope really lies in, in the investigation that you carried out. We're not totally to blame. We're not primarily to blame. This is being done to us by really powerful forces. Um, It's a bit like someone is constantly pouring itching powder on us. And then that person is leaning forward and saying to us, do you know what, mate? Uh, You might want to learn how to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much. And it's like, yeah, that's fine. Meditation, very good. I'm strongly in favour of it. But you need to stop pouring itching powder on me, right? (laughs) And he went further. I mean, everyone listening, if you think about anything you've ever achieved in your life, whether it's being a good parent, starting a business, whatever it might be, that achievement required a huge amount of attention and sustained focus. And when that breaks down, and there is good evidence it is breaking down now, your ability to achieve your goals breaks down and you become, I think of it as almost like when I was in this really distracted state, you feel almost like a stump of yourself, right? You can sense what you might have been but you can't get there. And and so the prize is great and it requires, you're absolutely right, it requires a transformation in consciousness, firstly to understand the 12 factors that are doing this to us, but also, how would I put it? We are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies. We own our own minds and we can take them back if we choose to, by taking on these powerful forces. And I think about all the big changes that we've lived through, um, you know, in, in, in achieving much greater equality for women, though there's a lot more to go in che- achieving equality for gay people. I was in Ireland when you had the referendum. All those changes happen through collective action and we need collective action to protect our attention, as well as obviously all sorts of personal changes and our own lives that I write about in Style and Focus as well. But with the best will in the world, Harry acknowledged that the middle of a pandemic is a tricky place in which to be. I interviewed this woman called Dr Nadine Burke-Harris, amazing woman, who is the Surgeon General of California, senior medical officer in the state. And she said to me, imagine if one day you were attacked by a bear and you survived. Something would happen to your attention in the next few weeks you would completely involuntarily start scanning the horizon for risks, right? You're looking around you thinking, what else could come at me? Because something's come at you you didn't expect. Okay, now imagine that a bear attacked you again. You would go into a state, likely go into a state called hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is where you are just scanning for risk everywhere. And this is for a very good evolutionary reason. There's a doctor in Adelaide in Australia, Dr. John Giardini, who said to me, you know, deep focus is a really good strategy when you're safe. You know, you read a book and you'll grow, you'll become wiser. It's a really stupid strategy if you're in danger. You'd be a fool to sit, you know, at the Battle of the Somme reading War and Peace. You're not going to be doing anything for very long. You're going to be shot in the head. And I think what's happened is particularly this third wave has flipped lots of us into a state of hypervigilance. It's like what the bear came back a third time, right? Mm-hmm. So no one should feel bad that they can't focus in the middle of a pandemic because stress does this to us. Ain't that the truth? That was Yoan Harry with Claire. But final confident assertion for the year ahead comes from this texter. Eyes on the prize yet again. 
Oh, cripes are starting early. Vinny and Kilty Mach to 5-1-5-1. I just turned 50, says Vinny, and I'm determined to be realistic for the first time ever with my January resolutions and aspirations. Mayo for Sam. <laughs> Mayo for Upco. Hill 16, Vinny. La, la, la. Less of that, Cormac. You're just up the corridor. Back in a bit. Welcome back. On Thursday, Liveline opened the faders for reaction to a comment from Pope Francis on pets versus children. I'll just give you a flavour of uh, what he was saying. He was talking about people substituting pets for children. He said that today we see a form of selfishness. We see that some people do not want to have a child. Sometimes they have one and that's it. But they have dogs and cats that take the place of children. And this may make people laugh, he says, but it is a reality. Um, and he goes on to say that the practice is a denial of fatherhood and motherhood and diminishes us and takes away our humanity. Gina was the opening call. She works with a dog rescue service and for her, four legs were infinitely better than two. The way I look at it is like with climate change and overpopulation and people not being able to get houses and no health care and, and then they want, he wants them to bring more children into the world and saying that they're wrong not to. I mean, um, and you know. Can, can I ask you, Gina, and I mean, this is obviously a very personal question, so, so um, tell me um, no, no if don't you mind. don't want to, but did you make a conscious decision not to have children or, or was it just something that didn't come your way? I was Googling uh, sterilisation when I was 14 or 15 years old. All right. So so this uh, is something... I have made my decision back that far. Wow. Um, and I'm now 62 tomorrow, next week. 62, yeah. <laughs> but no, I made that decision <clears throat> from the time I was a teenager. And I, I think quite a few people do, but they just don't come out and say it, you know. Why, why though? I, I mean, was there something... Well, you're either maternal or you're not. And um, I was never maternal. Um, it's just the way it is. And uh, I preferred dogs to people. Uh, it, it's a, such a personal choice for people. And for the Pope to come out and say something like that, I think is shocking because, you know, it is a dig at women. Let's get straight about it because men don't have babies. Yes, well, I suppose he did say it diminishes motherhood and fatherhood. Yeah, so he yeah. was he was inclusive inclusive in, in that in that way. But can I? And you're right, of course, that when when decisions are made about children, you rarely hear anybody judging men for no. for not having children. And other callers got in touch. Amongst them, Emmanuel, who felt that environmental concerns and falling birth rates were perhaps an issue, but for him, this was a matter of personal choice. I would find it a little judgmental uh, from the Pope's point of view. People have various pains in their life. They have historical reasons. They have all types of perspectives on the human condition. And sometimes people are not able to cope with children. Maybe they could have a can cope with a dog or a cat. Or they, 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 you know, people have different ways of coping in life. I think that they just come out with a statement and say that uh, people are being selfish. I think that everybody has to make a decision from their own perspective. Everybody tries in their life to do what best what what they can do. And then Jason phoned in. He has three dogs and two small children. But for him, the words of Pope Francis were wounding. I'm incensed by it. I was going to say, absolutely I, I, incensed by I, it. I was just going to say, how dare he? Yeah. How dare he call me a selfish individual? I have three dogs because I'm not a selfish individual. I took a rescue dog on because I'm not a selfish individual. I went to the extreme lengths more than anybody you could argue in history. I would say 
And I, I don't say that lightly, Katie. There's a hundred grand to have two children and to be able to travel. The time off, the, 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 the length that myself and my wife went to have children is pretty, pretty unique. Okay, I can't see many couples like me, but they're growing. They're out there. There are people who are having a career. They're going off traveling. They may have heart conditions. They may have problems in their lives. They may have issues with their lives. They're getting married later. They're deciding to have kids maybe later in life. And the science is allowing them to do this. So who is, the ch- who is, who is a man named Francis who's never probably had sex with a lady in his life Oh, okay, no. he doesn't okay. know anything about... Okay. I'm sorry, it's, it's called but... sex, isn't this? I, I'm sorry, but that's what we're talking about here. I mean, that's how children are got, isn't it? And if a man who's supposed to be representing Catholics throughout the world is going to go and stand up and say, we all better go out and have some more sex, well, then he's talking through his hat, and he needs to come out and apologise. And I officially, on the radio in Ireland, myself, I resign from the Catholic Church completely now because I've no faith in the director whatsoever. If the director of a company is insulting his staff, which is exactly what he's done, he's called them selfish and layabout and that you're going to pay for it eventually. And dogs are not the same as... as, I'm sorry, I offer the same amount of care and love that I do to to my animal. Okay, that I that I won't say to my child, but I, I would that I would to, to to most creatures on this in this on this planet. Okay, obviously you have a, you you have a bond with a child which goes goes stronger than that. But animals, of course, they're they're earthlings. I share this planet with their time, so I will treat them with the respect they deserve. Of course, I would. How is that selfish? And of course, people use them as crutches. That's what they're there for. That's what they're there for, for God's sake. When you've no one else to lean to and to, and to trust, my God, you can get the trust out of a dog. If that's, what it, if that's what you need in life to get through, well, then God bless you. And Jason wasn't holding back. He's insulted animal, animal, animal owners and he's insulted people who are struggling with, with childbearing. And that is not just me, it's, it's a lot of people out there. If I'd heard this news just after the day my wife and myself had failed our first IVF, holy Jimmy Mac, what would I have thought then? My God, I, I wouldn't be on the phone to you, um, Katie. I'd be running to Dublin. I'd be running to Dublin to be, uh, to be actually taken over the show. Okay, that's how, that's how, how sensitive I'd be about. Because it, it's just, it, it's, uh, it's extremely, it's I... extremely, it's, 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 it's upsetting. And it's, it's, um, I, 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 I feel for people out there going through what we went through. Um, and I, I wish you all well and persevere as best you can because if you do get children at the end of it, my God, everything else just fades in significance. Thursday's Live Line with Katie. On Arena, the Stanislavski method paved the way for method acting. What's my motivation? And all that. Film lecturer Stephen Benedict joined Sean to remind us of this rather infamous put down. Marathon man Laurence Olivier and yeah, and Dustin pe- Hoffman. Pe- people often recall that event, and I think they tell they misinterpreted. What happened was that there's there's a scene where Laurence Olivier's character is going to drill through Dustin Hoffman's tooth, and to extract not only the tooth but information from him. And Hoffman, in preparation for the role, stayed up all night and ran around the block three or four times and exhausted himself to prepare for the situation. And, and Laurence Olivier arrives on set and my dear boy, have you tried acting? And which was a very very condescending dismissal of the the preparation that. Hoffman was was delivering because they simply had two different approaches. You know, there's different approaches to acting, but sometimes you get a method actor coming up against a method actor. Sparks can fly. And Dustin Hoffman made a movie with Meryl Streep in 1979 and Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah. 
and it's a you know it's a movie about a divorce, very very contentious divorce, and in order to prompt. Meryl Streep to give the to give the response that he wanted from her. What happened was just before they made the movie, uh, Meryl Streep's boyfriend John Cazale, John Cazale of The Godfather, The Godfather Part Two, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter fame, he um, he died of cancer. And there's a scene in the on the witness in the courtroom on the witness stand when Meryl Streep is on the witness stand, and Dustin Hoffman started to goad her, and started talking to her about her relationship with John Cazale in the most personal terms, in the most offensive of ways. And she turned, literally, she turned white. But she didn't, she didn't shout back and she didn't lose her temper. She said very calmly, she said, if you want to use method techniques like emotional recall, which is what method mm. acting is about, if you want to use emotional techniques like emotional recall, use it on yourself, not me. So my point there, Sean, is that there is madness to the method. Yeah, <laughs> okay? yeah. You can go far too far. And, you know, Hoffman is a terrific actor, but phenomenally competitive, which I can't understand because acting is not competitive, it's collaborative. Team game, for sure is a team game. From Arena. Spring is coming and Philip and team are all over this one. Ladies and gentlemen, the fifth biggest daffodil producer in <laughs> Ireland who says that we don't find you the most fascinating guests on this programme. Dara McCullough, good morning to you. We're not skimping, but Dara is in a bit of a pickle. He can't get vaccinated workers. Generally, uh, 99% of my picking crew are from Romania. And uh, I've had the same crew come back to the farm every year for the last 10 years. And it's about 20 to 25 to 30 people. And uh, generally, they jump on a plane in sometime in early January and stay with me until sometime in late March. And uh, we comb the fields every day um, between those two points. Problem is, of course, with Romania, <laughs> they want the lowest vaccination rates in Europe. And when I sent the word uh, out to Romania before Christmas, lads, which is please get vaccinated before you come over here, it really put my mind at ease. Um, no, we're not interested. Um, and there was a lot of arm twisting and wrangling and in the heat of the hunt I've had to settle for antigen tests and I don't know if that's going to be effective or not it's going to take me a lot of time every Monday and Thursday morning but it's the best I can come up with And then Philip, ever the provocateur asked this Try not to laugh too hard at the answer to my next question please Have you tried training Irish people to do this job? Um, ha. <laughs> well, I say you have because um, during the last recession back in 2010, 2011, 2012, I had a field, a 23-acre field beside a really busy road, a road where about 20,000 cars go by a day. And it was basically like a 23-acre billboard that said, we grow daffodils and there was people out picking every spring and, you know, there's work here. I... Every year I get phone calls from Eastern Europe, from all over the place saying, hello, you have jobs, yeah? Um, yeah, I have jobs. Um, okay, we're coming. Grand, here's the rate and this is the accommodation and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no problem. We're on the way. So I never got a single call from an Irish person during the recession. I, I don't say this as, you know, finger wagging or anything like that. You know, this is a sign of a strong economy where people have choices. But the reality, Philip, is that Irish people don't want to pick daffodils or work in fields where, you know, we're harvesting crops. And it is, as Dara freely admitted, backbreaking work. But as a national leader in the daffodil world, where do all the flowers go? 
prepare for a Brexit twist. When you say, you know, do we have the Irish staff to market corn, you'd be shocked to hear that probably 95% plus of my daffodils uh, never darken an Irish shelf or shop. Um, they're all put on lorries and sent, uh, exported out of the country. So it's one of the few crops that we can go toe-to-toe with any grower anywhere in the world. And it, funny enough, Brexit has been a great thing for my business of Dafta Growing because the UK is the source of 80% of the world's daffodils, but they have a serious problem on their hands. Number one, getting the, the crop picked because they can't get staff or they can't bring in staff, seasonal pickers. And the second thing is, it's a pain in the face for um, UK farmers to try and export their product into traditional, onto the Dutch auctions, which of course is Europe. They have to go through all kinds of phytosanitary checks and all the rest of it. So that's been great for the prices on the Dutch auctions where a proportion of my flowers end up and which determines the price of daffodils globally. Wow. So it's funny how Brexit has worked. I mean, I was one of the farmers out there who was quivering in his boots wondering how Brexit was going to work and what effect it was going to have on my business. But um, it's actually had a really positive effect on my daffodil business. An unexpected bonus for one farmer anyway. That was Darren McCullough with Philip. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Serbian tennis player Novak Djokovic wants to play in the Australian Open. The only problem, for them anyway, is that he is not vaccinated. But Tennis Australia, the sporting body which runs the Australian Open, confirmed that the top seed had been granted medical exemption by two independent medical panels. Absolutely no use to him when he stepped off his flight in Melbourne and the government refused him entry. The issue here is not with Novak Djokovic, it's with Tennis Australia. So Tennis Australia wanted Novak Djokovic to play in this country to win the Grand Slam as the number one. So that was a pretty that was a pretty clear thing. He wanted to win a, a major title here in Australia at the Australian Open. Yet the issue they had was they did this, they did this medical the panel that they said that was anonymous. Unless they told Novak Djokovic that the paperwork that he'd provided would have given him a medical exemption under their rules, so it would have allowed him to play at the Australian Open. They didn't tell Novak Djokovic, you haven't satisfied the requirements to get into the country of Australia. Mm. And that's where it's all fallen over. Chris O'Keefe, federal political reporter with Nine News Australia with Claire. But ever the stickler for accuracy, our Claire took issue with his use of the anti-vaxxer tag. And what would allow you have a medical exemption? What are the grounds? So the grounds are the, the, fourfold. So the first is if you had myocarditis, if, so if you had a, an mRNA vaccine like a Moderna or a Pfizer. Now, we know that Novak Djokovic is an anti-vaxxer, so he hasn't had an adverse reaction to that, given that he hasn't had a vaccine to begin with, so he can't have a reaction to a COVID vaccine if you haven't had mm-hmm. one. So well, he said, he said personally, I'm opposed to, to vaccination to give him Correct. his due. Claire, the bloke's an anti-vaxxer. We know that, right? And I think that, uh, I think in this case, the other, the other, so there's three but other no, issues. But, but is one, it fair to it, say, it just, I want to be clear on this, Chris, is it fair to say that, I mean, he's not discouraging anybody else from having a vaccination. He's saying his personal choice is that he's opposed to vaccination. I'm just wary of, of attributing that to him when he, I don't think that he's been discouraging anybody else from going out there and getting a vaccine if that's their choice. Claire, there are people at the front of his hotel where he's in quarantine and detention right now in Melbourne 
the same people who held up effigies of our politicians, Australian politicians, in nooses. He is an anti-vaxxer. That's their choice, though. I mean, he, he is not encouraging oh, so you that. Don't, so you don't think he empowers them? I don't know, don't but I, I don't know that. And you don't know that either. So to call somebody an anti-vaxxer, I think, is a fairly serious charge. We know what his personal choice is, and, and maybe we'll leave it at that. But he hasn't provided any public statement explaining why he believes he's medically exempt. But he has said on the record before that he is against a, va- a vaccination. Mm-hmm. For himself. Yeah, OK, so... <laughs> let's let's leave it at that, shall we? Because I mean, I I don't know why those people are outside his hotel. Also, I don't I, know whether he phoned them up I'm and said, you, you know what I mean, Chris. I don't know whether he phoned yeah, them up no, and I said you should turn up, and and you don't either. In fairness to to those people and to him. And later on the same programme, Honorary Consul of the Republic of Serbia in Dublin, Zivko Jaksic, gave his take on the whole affair. You know, we had an Australian journalist on a little earlier, Chris O'Keefe, and he said to me, Claire, the bloke's an anti-vaxxer. What do you say? If he is, it's a personal choice which we're all allowed to make. There are people in this country who are not vaccinated and will not get vaccinated. I don't know whether he's vaccinated or not, but it's really immaterial. Do you think that now the best thing for him to do would be just to walk away, get on a plane and go home? Frankly, if I was in in his place, I would do just that. Give him the two fingers and go. The Claire Byrne Show on Thursday. Digging for fire was the drama on one this week. Dara Dukes, Owen O'Kelly and Kevin Brew looked back at making music in the 90s in Limerick. And yes, it was about being young and being creative and knowing that there are few things a smoke machine can't hide. I'm afraid these were not fragrant times. Acrid was the word on everyone's lips. When you came to a sound check, there was always a post-wedding party feel. Flat pints, overflowing ashtrays, surprise wet patches in the carpets. Two, 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 one, two. Or worse, the snare drum. The sound checks were always longer than the gigs. It's cold and it's damp, but soon there will be lights, and yes, there will be a smoke machine. A smoke machine was as essential as a bass player, and you might have to scour the back streets between the sound check and the gig to hire one. And the smoke machine, unlike the bass player, always got paid. Long before Heston Blumenthal, the smoke covered everything. The odours, poor wardrobe choices, bad choreography. It might even have improved the musical arrangements. It also gave cover for your friends and maybe the odd Uber fan who would gyrate up front to help take the spare look off the crowd on a slow night at the door. And on other, better days, it would hide from you the raised, gazing eyes of wrapped, sweat-soaked faces until the house lights came on. Oh, unearth your best ripped woolly jumper. But this was more than simply a nostalgia piece. It was about what you can create when you're young and unencumbered, which really means broke and living on pot noodles. What can we learn from our younger selves about creativity? Okay, I found this on the web for what can we learn from our younger selves about creativity. Sometimes it feels that we spend our entire lives trying to return to who we were as children. 
In our flowery shirts, in our roller skates, in our pajama tops, with the jar of honey on standby to make a voice sing better. Everything we tried felt new and exciting because mostly it was new to us. We braved the horizontal rain of our hometown. We gobbled chips at Friar Tuck's takeaway. It's not a bad old city. We took a million lifts from our parents. We crossed the Whistling Bridge, now Shannon Bridge, to rehearse in Zarek's studios. And when our band played together, we were really at the edge of our competence, which created an intensity that is hard to simulate. In former ballrooms like the Glentworth Hotel, we listened for our drummer Damien to count us in. several drumsticks later and the journey and the success and the failure and the nerves and the ideas and the fights made us think that whatever happened we have a story for people like you who were young before they were old because before we wrote with clarity in offices we wrote like children looking at words like you might choose colors for your coloring book and less concerned about the meaning drama on one. Now, the big questions answered. Do you say sofa or couch? Well, I love couch. I just think it sounds stunning. Um, (laughs) I just think it's just it's the end of it is that looks beautiful. But also sofa by design is actually something that's more designed to perch on. And a couch is is something that's more um, lounging. They're actually actually different things, are they? A sofa and a couch. From a design point of view, a sofa or like, I actually go through the history of the sofa and the couch because I actually love it. Go on, tell us, tell us, go on, share it with us. Well, see, they, sofas and couches were developed to be different things. Like a sofa basically was more when you were sitting around having people over um, uh, for tea or coffee. So you're sitting in an upright position. Uh And then the couch was more, it was lower and you're laying back a bit more. So I like couch because to be honest, if I'm sitting down, I'm practically lying down. (laughs) That's Laura DeBarra, whose book Decor Galore is her essential guide to styling your home. And as she told Ray, it's all about the rub. So yeah. the, the, the Weisenbeek, uh, Martindale and double rub. Tell us about those, because these are important <laughs> things, it, aren't they? Doesn't it sound absolutely <laughs> stunning? Well, honestly, like when I first heard of these, I was like, oh, I'm so into it. So basically, when you're looking at fabric these days, a lot of people, I used to work in fashion, so I have a bit of a fabric background. And there's always testing that's done on every fabric, no matter what you're buying. And it basically tells you how durable the fabric is. So what you have with couches, a lot of people don't actually check. They kind of more go for colour, which is completely normal to not know. And then these rub tests will actually tell you whether something is designed to just be sat on or something can be rolled around on quite often. (laughs) Um, You know, because everyone has different uses for their couch. Yeah, if there there are young children involved, you want want a high rub factor, I'd imagine. 100%. If something's, for example, like 10,000 and under, that should only be like something that's like a decorative item that's not designed to be sat on. And so a lot so of, that's, that's, they've tested it in, in laboratory situation and they've mm-hmm. rubbed it 10,000 times <laughs> and they've found that after 10,000 rubs, it disintegrates. Is that it? So well, you also have a, dub, a double rub where a double, it rubs one way and rubs the okay, way back. Okay. Which, you know. 
Oh, the things you learn. And finally, this wee nugget. Keeping the toilet seat down when you flush it. Tell us about that. Oh, (laughs) everyone loves this. It's called, basically, when you flush a toilet, a plume is released into the air. And a lid, as with the lid on anything, is designed to keep something inside. Right. So when you flush, you should have the toilet seat down. And this was quite big at the start of the pandemic in America, actually. They'd have your wash your hands, wear your mask and keep the toilet seat down when you flush to stop the spread of um, germs. And like I was in a viewing recently, really high end flat and really bespoke bathroom and it had no toilet seat lid. And I was just like, oh, like I will only stand in here for a second. So I think a lot of people don't actually realize they think that the lid is maybe like to stop your dog drinking out of the toilet. But or it is to stop this in. plume going up. OK, there you have it. Yet another way to fight about the toilet seat. Laura DeBarra with Ray. Now, it may feel a little early in the year. But I think we'll take it. It's cold. It's a bit grim. Half the country seems to be sick, but the stretch is back. Rachel on Morning Ireland. And she spoke to Ava O'Hanlon, whose Twitter account, The Grand Isle Stretch, is out with the measuring tape. Now, the stretch actually begins before the winter solstice. Will you explain? Yeah, uh, as a result of the way that the Earth travels around the sun every year and the way that the earth spins on its axis every day. What we have is the latest sunrise in the morning happens about a week after the winter solstice and the earliest sunset in the evening happens a week before the winter solstice. So we calculate the stretch from the 13th of December which was when the uh, the earliest sunrise took place and on the 14th of December, just past, the Grand Isle stretch started at two seconds. Right, so we've been getting more light in the evenings for more than a fortnight now. Correct, correct. And now, uh, just last yesterday, for example, the Grand Isle stretch had grown to 13 minutes and a little bit more since the 13th of December. Wow, that's quite a difference. I didn't realise it was as much as that. It gets, it gets to about 10 minutes on the 1st of January and at, on the 31st of January it's already an hour long. Yeah, so how much extra light then on average do we get every evening at this time of year? We get round about now times, we get about 7 seconds additional light. 7 seconds and counting. There's hope for you yet, 2022. Well, that is almost it for this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. And to finish... You can't go past a little bit of Misha Freshen. And this offering has a slight nod to the antigen test. Right up there, mind you. Right up. First, the preparation. Place your index finger under the tip of your nose. Push nose up slightly. Flare nostrils in and out several times. Breathe normally. There there you are, looking positively stunning. Now, let's get back to the party. To learn more about the shape of your face and what can be done with tricks of illusion, here's something else you can do. Don't misunderstand. I am no enemy of fashion. I recommend that as you get on in years, you wear some modification.
combination of what you've been wearing right along. What is that? It's the silliest thing I ever saw in my life, for God's sake. Then I put this disc on the turntable there. See? Right? Now I move the arm. The arm with the needle, you see? Are you listening, dear? Oh, I'm listening. All right, okay. Now, I move the arm with the needle over the disc, you see? And I set the needle down on the disc, okay? 